He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Well, you're back with us at the Stay Off the Operating Table podcast. I'm Jack Heald. This is my uh, illustrious founder of the co- of the show, Philip Ovedia. Phil, who have we got with us today? Well, we got a real honor today, Jack, uh, to have uh, Christopher Palmer with us. Um, listeners who have been with us for a while know that uh, many of our episodes turn into blowing Jack's mind. And I remember one of the earliest examples of that, I think way back in season one, was when I mentioned that improving your metabolic health might improve your mental health. Yeah. And Jack's mind was appropriately blown and said, I got to learn more about that. So um, keeping that in mind, I've gone out and found uh, what I would consider the godfather of mental health and metabolic health, uh, Chris Palmer. And uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little more, Chris, and then uh, get into the discussion. Sure. It's an honor to be here. So uh, thank you. So I am a psychiatrist. I'm at Harvard Medical School. been a psychiatrist for over 25 years. Um, my day job is running an education department for Plain Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Um, I also do neuroscience, psychiatric research, and uh, have been doing that for over 20 years, and work with patients as well. You have treatment-resistant mental disorders. Usually by the time people see you, they have numerous other mental health professionals, usually tried on dozens of medications, been in and out of hospitals, often tried to or other uh, tried what? Uh, electroconvulsive therapy, oh, shock okay. therapy, shock therapy, um, right. or or other forms of aggressive psychiatric treatment. And when all of that fails, they end up at my doorstep, and uh, and and I'm supposed to do something. So uh, that's a little bit about me. And uh, the last, uh, you know, for about 20 years, I've been using low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets in clinical practice depression, anxiety disorders. Over the last seven years, I have been using it with treatment resistant chronic severe mental disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. So okay. 20 years ago, you know, you started <laughs> using this. And, and 20 years ago, you know, most people had never even heard of low carb, you know, maybe outside of uh, Dr. Atkins' uh, work. Uh, but what uh, how did you first start using that? Why, why did it occur to you that that might help uh, in the treatment of? Good old Dr. Atkins. So, <laughs> um, uh, really? So started with my own personal story. I, uh, you know, I was in my 20s, was uh, finishing up residency, already diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, so had high blood pressure diabetes, um, uh, bad lipid numbers, uh, triglycerides, and uh, you know, I had been 
pretty diligent about following at the time highly recommended low fat diet and uh so i was obsessively on a low fat diet and exercising pretty regularly and my metabolic syndrome was only getting and uh so after several years of that and not getting better my doctor started pushing more aggressively various pills on me uh for blood pressure and cholesterol and and a lot, I kept pushing him off saying, you know, I really don't want to go down that road. What the hell? I'm doing everything right. Like I am doing the program and it's not working. Why is it not working? Um, and of course, I do have a strong family history of both diabetes and cardiovascular disease. All of that. So like, oh, it must be genetic. Sucks to you. There's nothing to do. So mm. in a last ditch effort, I uh, tried the Atkins diet. I had heard mill might improve metabolic syndrome for some people, which I, at the time, was pretty skeptical of. You know, I was pretty traditionally trained and uh, bought everything I was being told, hook, line, and sinker, so I really did not think it would work. But um, it was my last, it was the only thing I knew to try before, you know, kind of going on medication and probably having my first heart attack when I was 50 and being on your operating table. <laughs> and uh, So uh, I tried the Atkins diet, and lo and behold, within three months, everything improved. Um, my metabolic syndrome was completely reversed and eliminated. But um, interestingly, I noticed significant changes in my mentals. Uh, I was not clinically depressed time that I tried it, but I noticed significant improvement in my mood, my energy, my um, motivation, my sleep. I was more confident. Um, you know, I had I had just a lot more energy for life, and uh, and it was striking because I'd never been like that in my entire life. So I started to wonder, like, gosh, if you're doing this for me, what about all these patients? that I see who have treatment-resistant depression and they've tried everything and nothing worked for them, I wonder what this diet might do them. It took me now, a couple of years. You didn't have a clinical diagnosis of any kind of, of emotional or mental health issue, right? You just noticed that, that you felt better. At that point in time, I did not, although I had had a history of depression. Uh, I had a long history of depression as a child and adolescent. So, okay. um, uh, uh, and, and that may be relevant for why I noticed such a profound improvement. I don't know. Um, uh, it's certainly probably relevant about why I had never felt that way before. Wow. I had never felt good. Um, but at the time that I was doing it, I wasn't clinically depressed. I had just got, I'd gotten to medical school. I was doing residency. I was working 80 plus hour a week. Um, and I was fine. I was actually getting awards for achievement in medical school and residency. Um, so I was a high performer, high achiever. Um, uh, so I was a work hard kind of person. But you know that saying, work hard, play hard? I never could understand who the hell would want to play hard. I was always like, aren't you tired and exhausted from working hard? Like, why would you also want to play hard? Like, don't you just want to relax on the sofa and watch TV like me? <laughs> Um, but yeah, 
So you you notice your own changes, and you you I guess ask the question any good scientist would ask. Wonder if I would see a similar effect under a different set of circumstances with these patients. Carry on with yes. that story. Yeah. So I started using it in several patients with treatment resistant depression um, and related disorders. Some of them had been diagnosed with anxiety disorder, personality, other along with their chronic depression. But um, uh, not everybody was able to do the diet. I will fully close. And uh, but of the people who were able to do the diet, um, almost all of them had significant one woman actually got hypomanic first I noticed within a month of her she was almost happy and uh, hmm. profound striking she has been depressed severely crippled crippled depression for you know for over 10 years suicidal all the time oh my um, God. just had no energy and uh, and Became hypomanic for about two weeks. Um, it wasn't it didn't cause problems in her life, but it was striking. So happy that calmed down, and um, and she actually did quite well on the diet. Um, and uh, and so I continued that, especially patients with diabetes. I knew about it as an anti-diabetes treatment. Um, and had seen that work in my own parents. Um, so for patients who also had comorbid diabetes, I was absolutely using it because it seemed like even if it wasn't help their mental health, it probably help their physical health, but sure enough, lo and behold, when I could when I could get them in ketosis, lower their blood sugar, their mental health almost universally. Wow. So there are depression, anxiety. Other across the board, proving. But you know, back then, you know, the Atkins diet was extraordinarily controversial. Um, did not have today. We have quite a few studies of low carbohydrate ketogenic Atkins-like diet. You know, intervention for both weight loss and for diabetes. So. You know, I can today say that we have a rigorous evidence base for the intervention for weight loss. But um, at the time, we didn't have that rigorous database. And, um, and at, Dr. Atkins was largely considered a quack in the medical community. And his diet was largely considered dangerous. Um, and so I kind of mm. laid low. Uh, I was just trying to help the patients in front of me. And um, using it, but I wasn't out there publishing anything. I wasn't out there speaking. I wasn't on a speaking circuit or anything because um, I certainly didn't want to get in trouble. Uh, but I didn't feel bad about what I was doing because patients all had treatment resistant mental disorders. There really wasn't a whole lot more to offer them. And, uh, and it was working. And I was tracking their metabolic health at the time. And it was moving. So I was kind of like, well, I don't care what. The rest of the medical thinks like I saw in my you know metabolic syndrome, my blood pressure went down, everything got better. Uh, my LDL actually went down on the diet, and uh, so 
literally everything got better. And my primary care doctor said, whatever the hell you're doing, just doing it because this is phenomenal progress. So I had no qualms about what I was doing. I wasn't worried. I, I was ready to defend myself, but I wasn't ready to public about it. Um, and then that all changed for me about, about seven years ago now when uh, one of my patients with affective disorder, kind of a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, um, he asked for my help to wait. <clears throat> and he had already tried several other weight loss methods and could not lose weight using them. And so I was familiar and comfortable uh, and a fan of ketogenic diet, so we decided to try the ketogenic diet. And at the time I tried it with him, I... You know, truly, honestly, was just trying to help him lose weight. You know, depression is not the same thing as schizophrenia. Right. Um, at least at the time, in my mind, they're completely different disorders. And um, that's evolved now. But uh, at, at the time... I, I can't was, wait to hear more about that. At, at the time, I thought of these as completely different disorders. And even though I had seen it work on depression, I really knew in my heart of hearts. I, I mean, I knew this with certainty. Chronic psychotic disorders are brain, they're serious brain disorders. They are lifelong disorders. They ruin people's lives. There's no escaping them. Even with the best treatment, you know, they people don't get better. It, it's, um, and that's the way. And they go to their deathbed uh, being schizophrenic and disabled by their illness. And um, so I had no conception this was going to help his mental um sure enough within you know a couple weeks losing weight and within about two weeks i noticed very strong antidepressant effect um and he was much less sedated making better eye contact um was making jokes talking a lot more and uh and i initially i was kind of shocked at how much better he seemed. But um, I, I wrote it off to, oh, here's that antidepressant effect that I see in these other people. It's happening for him. That's great. Um, but he was still psychotic. He was still, you know, quote-unquote crazy, hallucinating, having delusions, all the same stuff that he had. It took probably about six to eight weeks. Um, so it did, does not, did not work overnight, psychotic but within about six to eight weeks, he spontaneously reported that, you know, to me, like, you know those voices that I hear all the time? I'm like, yeah. Like, they're going away. They're they're getting quieter and not really happening as much anymore. And when they do happen, I can kind of ignore them. I just, I just, I, I don't want them to bother me. And probably a, a couple weeks after he told me that, um, said you know how you know how i always talked about those families that owned all of the technology they control the world they were targeting me and they can put thoughts in my head and and they're tormenting me and they're trying to you know they i don't know what i've done they have it out for me so we had all of the elaborate conspiracy theories that have been going on for years, about 10 years at that point. And he was tormented by the conspiracy mm. theory. Um, you know, couldn't go 
go out in public because he convinced everybody out in public part of the team. They were all part of the, you know, plan wow. to hurt him and torture him. He's like, you know, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, are we going to talk about that again? <laughs> and he said, I don't, I kind of don't think that's true anymore. And now that I say it, it sounds kind of crazy, right? Like, I, it, maybe it, maybe it never was true. Maybe, maybe I've had schizophrenia all along and that those things were never really happening. But I, I don't think family exists. I don't think targeting. Um, I think if I did have schizophrenia, it's way. And what was your response here? I, I was dumbfounded. I, I was, I was really dumbfounded. Um, I, you know, he was also working with a psychologist, and his father was very active involved. And um, he, uh, so I had to ask both of them uh, over time. Like, are you guys seeing what I'm seeing? Because I'm kind of not believing what I'm seeing. <laughs> this this cannot this can't be happening. I I don't know how to understand. Our model this. says this is impossible. Yes, everything that I've learned as a psychiatrist says this is impossible. This cannot be happening. His schizophrenia cannot be going away because I didn't change his meds. He didn't get he wasn't in the hospital. I, I'm I just have him on a diet and he's losing weight. That's all we're doing. We're, I'm helping him lose weight. And like the fact that that might help depression never, you know, initially it was shocking to me, but at that point I'd been dealing with it for 15 you know, plus years. So it wasn't that shocking to me that your mood might improve as you lose weight or as you lose your metabolic syndrome. Or I, I didn't really fully understand how to think about it. But the fact that his schizophrenia was going away was truly dumbfounded. And so I quickly went on a search to try to understand how and why that might even be possible. And only then did I learn that the ketogenic diet has been used now for a hundred years of epilepsy. I didn't know that at the time. I knew about the ketogenic, you know, Atkins keto diet as a weight loss or diabetes intervention, but I had never heard of it epilepsy. And that it, it, in in your previous model of mental health, did epilepsy and things like schizophrenia and, and bipolar all occupy the same general space absolutely so oh, okay. that that was the huge connection for me is is i found out this is an epilepsy um and there's a robust evidence base toward it in epilepsy it became a no-brainer the connection obviously clear we epilepsy treatments every day and tens of millions of people with mental disorders so in fact anticonvulsant medication are used probably tenfold or more in mental patients than they are in epilepsy patients. Um, mm. You know, medications like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax, Neurontin, or Gabapentin, all the benzodiazepines, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, those are all anti-epileptic treatments. 
But the majority of your listeners are going to recognize those names because they know somebody who took them for a mental disorder, for anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, something else. Epilepsy is a relatively rare disorder. Mental disorders are extraordinarily common disorders. So it's not necessarily that they're more effective mental disorders, just that there are so many more people that they get used all the time. And so as soon as I recognized that connection, it was a no-brainer. Like, well, whoa, if this is an actual evidence-based treatment for epilepsy, yeah, this really might be working for, like, it's doing something to his brain. If, if his diet can stop seizures, it's doing something in his brain to maybe... Oh, okay, that's what the connection was. All right, yeah. that makes sense, yeah. yeah. So, so the diet can stop seizures, and we actually have a robust evidence based on, you know, all of the mechanisms of action might be contributing to that effect. But if anything can stop seizures, it, it also has the high likelihood of possibly helping mental. Um, and so, so at how, that point, how did that change? How did that shift your model of, of the type of medicine you So at that point, quite honestly, I felt like I had discovered something really important in terms of its effect on schizophrenia. And and the reason I felt so important is schizophrenia is such a hopeless diagnosis. Mm. Um, it, even with like as I said before, even with the best are tormented and disabled by their symptoms. Um, and the treatments that we have make people fat, they make people weight, they make people diabetic, they give them premature cardiovascular disease. And on average, people with serious mental disorders die very early deaths. On average, they die, depends on what study you look at, but on average, they probably die about 20 early deaths. Wow. Um, so they lose 20 years of life. And um, so anything, even if it's got toxic side effects, anything that improves the symptoms dramatically and gives people their life back, let alone this, which, oh, the side effect is weight loss and diabetes remission and, you know, all of, all of that. Not getting. Uh, yeah. yeah, not getting hard. To, I mean, I'm like, wow, but this is, this is like really phenomenal. And. So lo and behold, I, you know, I started searching the literature. I was using this with many more patients, started collaborating with researchers all around the world. I learned that Eric Westman had had a similar case that he reported at first in 2009, but that nobody had really done anything with that um, since that case report. Um, There was a small pilot trial way back in 1965, which for the most part, nobody knew about, nobody talked about, uh, um, nobody heard about, but I found it in literature search. Um, and there were just a, a tiny handful of other case reports um, using the treatment for bipolar disorder. Um, and uh, so at that point, I started publishing, as I said, collaborating with a lot of people, um, publishing case series, small clinical pilot trials, others. And since then, there's really been an explosion of interest 
in the ketogenic diet for mental disorders. This has the attention of some of the leading psychiatrists and neuroscientists in the world who are also publishing science. So even though they themselves are not necessarily using the diet yet in patients, they are they are doing you know exhaustive reviews of science. What do we know about this ketogenic diet in neurology? And how is it stopping seizures? And then how could those mechanisms pair up with what we know about um, you know, brain abnormalities with mental disorders? And in fact, it's a match made in heaven in many ways. Um, that how this so? diet um numerous ways. So this diet changes the neurotransmitter system. So it's consistent with the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness, rebalancing chemical imbalance. Um, it uh, improves insulin signaling, and you know insulin. You know most people know insulin as it relates to type two diabetes, but um, or type one diabetes. But insulin actually has profound effects on brain function. There are insulin receptors located throughout the brain, um, and it has profound effects on brain function. We know that. High levels of insulin resistance are associated um, with uh, serious mental disorders like bipolar schizophrenia and chronic depression. Um, uh, and so this diet improves insulin resistance. That might be one of the mechanisms of action. The diet decreases brain inflammation. Um, it changes the gut microbiome. And there are some scientists who believe that actually might be the primary mechanism of action for its brain effects. Is the way that it changes the gut microbiome in beneficial ways. Um, and I could go on and on. It does many other things. Um, metabolism. Um, and so. so no, go ahead. I was, I was just going to jump in at this point. What, you know, what is your perception of how many patients, you know, with mental health di- di- disorders? Um, have overt metabolic syndrome. And in patients who you deal with that don't have overt metabolic syndrome, do you still see the same improvements with ketogenic diets? It's a great question. So I think the the answer to your first question, it depends on the diagnosis, depends on the how long they've been in treatment and what treatments they're getting. So one of the biggest challenges in our field that treatments that we give Antipsychotic medication, but also stabilizers, some antidepressants, as I said, cause weight gain, they cause diabetes, mm. they cause metabolic syndrome. Um, wow. And so a lot of people in the field or a lot of you know, patients, family members think that that is the primary cause. It's, it's medication. So if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, the reason you have metabolic syndrome is because the pills that they're giving. It turns out that, you know, there's no question the pills that we are giving people are absolutely positively making the problem dramatically worse. There is zero doubt about that. Mm. However, that isn't the whole story. So the connection between, for instance, diabetes and schizophrenia and bipolar disorder has been observed since 1800, even before we had antipsychotic and stabilizing. Um, and we have we, we have several studies um, 
recently, you know, in the last five years, that have looked at patients who come in with their first episode of bipolar disorder schizophrenia, and they already show signs of glucose regulation before we even give them on. And so, um, so I, I would say, in terms of the total number, probably a decent average for people with chronic serious mental disorders, relatively recently diagnosed. Um, at least probably 50%, uh, especially if they're taking antipsychotics. I mean, as soon as you say they're taking antipsychotics, they've been on them for more than a year, that number is going to go way up because the rates of obesity and the chronically mentally ill are, you know, it depends on what study you look at. One meta-analysis suggests, uh, of all of the studies done, suggests that um, patients with serious mental disorders are about three times more likely to have obesity than patients without illness. Um, three times. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, how do you even get to three times when the rates of obesity are so high right. in our population? It's about 40% at <laughs> baseline. You're, you're, so. you're, you're, you're going above 100% now. And like, yeah. but, uh, um, so, uh, but the rates are very high in the chronic mental ill. So, but the interesting, news is some researchers at McLean Hospital where I work have done studies on this and they have actually found signs of brain glucose in you know or glucose hypometabolism which might be suggestive of insulin resistance or a problem with insulin signaling so insulin and I'll, I'll just say you know make it more complicated insulin in the brain is different than insulin in the rest of the body. So most people know insulin as like a, a lock and key thing. It lets glucose into the cell. In the brain, that's not necessarily always true. There, there are probably some cells in insulin might play a role in glucose getting inside the cell, but for the most part, glucose can get into brain cells. So insulin appears to be more like a hormone or neurotransmitter in the in the brain that that regulates brain metabolism more broadly, not so as I gotta say. In, insulin <laughs> in the brain it acts more as a neurotransmitter. neurotransmitter hormone almost. And so um but the researchers at McLean Hospital did some studies with schizophrenia, their siblings did not have a mental illness, and then normal healthy control. Um, and what they found is that both the patient, schizophrenia, and their sibling had high levels of insulin resistance or insulin signaling problems in the brain compared to the healthy control. But that this insulin... So does that imply there's a genetic component to it? Well, it implies that that might be a risk factor that runs families. Okay. And um, and most people would assume it is genetic. I actually don't think it's necessarily genetic. But it does run in. Okay. Um, and might be just raised in a similar environment, eating similar foods, leading to well, metabolic changes. Yes. It could be that, or it could even be just the womb environment. So, you know, the womb environment. Mm affects 
a lot of epigenetic signaling. And, um, and so if your mother, for instance, is insulin resistant, she can pass that on to you, not through genetics per se, but through epigenetics. And the wow, reason I make I've that never clarification, heard that. so the reason I make that clarification, and the reason I think it's really important clarification, because when people say it's genetic, everybody assumes you're screwed. That right. if it's if it's written in your DNA, there's no way to change it. You are just true. And we actually have an abundance of evidence because we've mapped the human genome. We have had the map for over 20 years. It is not in the gene. So more than likely, this is being transmitted epigenetically. And the reason that is such a hopeful message is because epigenetics can be changed. You can change your epigenetics. You can't change your genetics right now, but you can change your epigenetics. And so even if this is something that runs in your family, it doesn't mean that it's hopeless. It, you can do something about it. And the something that you can do is lifestyle intervention. Diet, exercise, and other things can change your epigenetic pattern and can actually reverse diabetes. And in my experience now, at least in some cases, reverse chronic fever mental. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, I, I think we really need to emphasize, you know, that, that part of it, that giving hope to these patients who have told there is no hope, you know, and they're coming to you with uh, these chronic severe, you know, mental conditions. They're coming to me with advanced heart disease. Uh, they're battling obesity, you know, their entire lives, and they've been told there's no hope. And the power of, you know, this, these interventions to give people hope, uh, and they get these results. Uh, I will say, you know, being at the uh, Metabolic Health Summit uh, a few weeks ago with you and the session that you, yep. know, you did with your patient uh, to just get their stories out there of how there is hope in what seems like a hopeless situation is just so important. Yeah, I completely agree. And if, again, if you had asked me nine years ago, do I think there's a lot of hope schizophrenia or bipolar disorder? I would have said the party line. I would have said, well, you know, it's a chronic brain disorder. Uh, probably runs in family. You know, we think it runs in family, so it's probably genetic. And that means that you, it's written in your DNA. Sorry, not a lot we can do our best. Um, the treatments suck. We're all waiting on a miracle, or we're waiting on some genius to figure this all out. And in time, you suffer um, and be disabled. And uh, and I don't believe any of that. Anymore. So talk Amazing. about the environment in your in your specialty and how this this new way of thinking has been received in your field and are, are we seeing it propagate through through the discipline of psychiatry So we're in the early stage of right um the really kind of almost dumbfounding um, to me at least uh, kind of reality is that this is fairly well received 
I have been shocked mm. at how easy it has been to persuade main take and um you know so getting getting mainstream psychiatry to take ketogenic diets actually and it was pretty easy because again it's an evidence and all I have to so I focus on the science and the brain science and I I don't really talk about this diet as a, a weight loss diet I don't talk about it as a trendy you know diet I I don't talk about it as a diabetes I talk about it as evidence-based epilepsy and we use evidence-based epilepsy every day and millions of people and as soon as I say that and present the science and present the data I have most psychiatrists and neuroscientists attention. They're like, either they knew it already and they're like, okay, I'm listening, or they didn't know and they're like, tell me more. Like, I had no idea. There's two Cochrane reviews, like that's the gold standard meta-analysis in the medical field. We have two Cochrane reviews that were positive for ketogenic diet for epilepsy. So that gets people's attention and people are really interested and excited. But, you know, my work, so we actually have at least five clinical pilot trials getting underway of the ketogenic diet for bipolar disorder and or schizophrenia now. So um, those are the next steps in the medical field, really advanced. Um, there are trials getting underway for the treatment of major depression. Yes. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, um, our federal government, did a study of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism or not. And it was a positive study. It worked. Um, Expand on that. What does that mean that it was a positive study? It's so um, they, they took a, it was a pilot study, I think about 40 participants and they admitted them for a detox at the national government building. Um, and they assigned half of them to the standard American diet. And the other half got a ketogenic diet, and they did um, they did brain scans, tons of blood tests, and uh, a traditional detox. And what they found is the patients who got the ketogenic diet required um, less detox medication. In spite of getting less medication, they had fewer withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. They reported fewer craving for alcohol. And then they did brain scans on these people. The people who are getting the ketogenic diet had in brain metabolism in areas that are known to be affected in alcoholism. And they also had reduced brain inflammation, um, which they also think might be playing a role in chronic alcoholism. How is, so that, brain, how is brain inflammation measured? What um, does that even are, mean? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, no. As soon as you get into details, there are lots. There are lots of ways to measure brain inflammation. Um, so, uh, off the top of my head, I cannot recall the specifics of what metric research. But um, this was coming from the federal government and Nora Volkow, and she's like a world leader. And I'm going to trust. She said decreased brain inflammation. I'm going to trust with okay. decreased brain inflammation. Um, and, could this uh, be the same? Could this be the same mechanism that's involved when just your average overweight Joe reports that, in addition to losing weight, when I went on this diet, my 
brain fog cleared up. Is that the same thing that's going on? That's just yes, I think it is. Um, yeah. And uh, and depending on who the person is, how serious um, some of that inflammation is, you know, we know that brain inflammation is related to itself. Um, and it's interesting. So in animal models, mouse models primarily, we know that when they feed mice um, a obesity-inducing high-fat diet, so it's not just fat, it's also sucrose and other crap that they put in. But, you know, researchers have concocted a specific diet that almost universally makes mice fat. And when they feed mice this diet, their brain becomes inflamed first. That is the first thing that happens. They first get brain inflammation. That then affects the feeding behavior center and the reward center of the brain, oh which my. can then lead to overeating, sure. which can then act also affect whole body metabolism because your brain plays a role in your your body's burning calorie. And um and so this brain inflammation seems to be a part of the pathway. We I, I it's I don't think it's fair to say it is the key pathway. Some people would say that. I don't feel like we have the evidence to actually say that. But we know that it comes first and then the mice get fat. If when researchers try to interfere wow. and prevent the brain inflammation, oftentimes it mitigates the damage of that high-fat diet. So the mice can still be eating that same diet, um, and it can mitigate some of that damage. So if um, I make, make an entirely intuitive well, leap, eating crap affects your brain first. Yes, it does. And very, we, you know, and it might, well and that might be, that might be playing through the gut because we know the gut and the brain communicate with each other, and they're directly connected nerves. But there are all sorts of hormones and neurotransmitters even being from your gut that affect your brain function. So one interesting little factoid: wow. oh. 90 percent of your body's serotonin is in your gut. It's not. In so everybody knows serotonin is a happy molecule because that's supposed to cause depression. But the overwhelming majority of it is found in your gut, not found. When you say um, found in, that means when it's circulating in your system, it's primarily circulating in your gut. It uh, well, the the gut has its own nervous system, and the cells of the gut also produce a variety of neurotransmitters, hormones that do get released into the bloodstream and then travel throughout the body brain have effect and so um yeah so the this goes we're going way down this is this this is is well so all of this mind again all of this is what i would call metabolism Um, really this is all metabolism oh wow this is what metabolism is this is what metabolism how it works it is it's ridiculously complicated, um, and yet it is all connected. It what what's happening in your gut is influencing the entire rest of your body. 
Um, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I love the brain, and I think the brain is kind of the control center of the body. Um, now, some cardiologists might disagree and <laughs> feel pretty strongly. The brain needs that, to get blood from somewhere, right? <laughs> that the heart, and the, the heart actually uses the most energy per, like, square inch of any organ in the human body, even the brain. Uh, even the brain does not beat the heart. The heart uh, is the energy-consuming organ of the human body. Um, so I will throw you that bone. But, uh, but yeah. otherwise, I love the brain. And <laughs> well, it just, and, and you know, it's kind of amazing that we, you know, have gotten to this point in medicine where we think, where we don't think these things are all. We think that a diet that, you know, can improve uh, gut health and improve brain health can be damaging the heart at the same time or vice versa. Um, you know, so it really doesn't make any sense that we don't realize that this is all interconnected and one thing is going to affect the other. I want to uh, kind of follow up on some, you know, Jack was asking about your psychiatric colleagues and, and what, how they received it. Uh, but I do want to bring up that you're at Harvard and there's a nutrition school at Harvard that is one of the most vocal opponents of ketogenic diets out there. Um, what has your experience been around that? talking to your colleagues, you know, at Harvard and in the Harvard system? So the the real answer is Harvard is a huge, huge place. Um, and it is, it encompasses um, numerous hospital entities and schools of health and uh, oh, it's got the college, all of the graduates, everything else. So, um, so I don't run in to Walter Willett on a daily basis. <laughs> he doesn't accost me um, or argue with me. Um, uh, but um, and Harvard, because Harvard is such a place, um, we have a lot of different opinions. And so David Ludwig is at Harvard. Um, you know, we have a, a Harvard medical student, Nick Norwood. Um, the vocal ketogenic diet proponent because it health dramatically. Um, we have, you know, ketogenic epilepsy center at Harvard hospitals. Um, we have a lot of ketogenic diet researchers, you know, doing science on the ketogenic diet for cancer, for diabetes, for, um, for brain disorders, um, uh, and for weight loss. Uh, David Ludwig is certainly a lot of weight loss stuff low-carb diet. So Harvard's a big place. There are lots of opinions there on all sides of the fence. Um, so, you know, Walter Willett does not speak universally for Harvard, nor do I. I don't speak for Harvard either. The one thing that I will say is, again, so I'm at McLean Hospital, which is a psychiatric Yeah, that's what I specialize in psychiatry. And the reception that I've gotten there has been phenomenal, um, phenomenal. I, so I, I have a book coming out um, on a much deeper dive of all of this, and the hospital is ridiculously supportive of um, everything I'm uh, all the way to the chair, chair of the board, a trustee, president of the hospital. Um, all of them are aware of it. Some of that is because I'm getting donations from 
wealthy philanthropist. And that gets the attention of, <laughs> that gets the attention of the leadership. And then the leadership loves what you're doing. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so that could be playing a little bit of a role, but, um, but, you know, there are researchers at McLean Hospital um, where, you know, I've been for 25 years. There are a whole group of researchers who have been looking at the metabolic basis of, um, you know, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in particular, mitochondrial function and dysfunction as late disorder. They've been doing that work for over 20 years. And, um, they are actually some of the world's leading authorities work. So when I first talked to them about using the ketogenic diet, um, you know, one of them actually said, you know, we we tried to do a study on the ketogenic diet like a couple of years ago, but we couldn't find a dietitian or anybody to work with us. Like there's no way you can get a schizophrenic patient to do this diet. Are you telling me you've gotten a schizophrenic patient to do this diet? Um, and, you know, they were coming at it from the science angle. They had never done a keto diet. And this researcher actually said to me, I wouldn't be able to do that diet. It sounds so restrictive and awful. Like, I wouldn't be able. So how could I get a schizophrenic patient? And I'm like, yeah, no, I am getting schizophrenic patients and patients with bipolar disorder and chronic depression. I'm getting them to do the diet. And he's like, and what does it do? Does it actually work? I'm like, yes, it works. <laughs> like, it's shocking how well it works. So he came at it from the science angle based on all of the basic neuroscience that he's been doing for decades. And, and knowing the neuroscience literature on the ketogenic diet and, and thinking, like, this is a match made in heaven, but you can't get anybody to do the diet. And then I come at it oh, wow. from a more pragmatic <laughs> stance because I've been doing the diet myself for 20 years and I know how to do the diet. I know how to get people to do the diet. So I can combine both the science, but also the pragmatic art of how do you get people to do this? Um, and uh, so we're actually working together on putting together a study now. Um, uh, people are, yeah, the, the reception at, Harvard in general has been extraordinarily positive for me. Um, uh, it, and I, I really have been blown away at how positive. Yeah, that's good to hear. And, and the Thanks. other, you know, thing that I think is the other thing that I think is, uh, you know, maybe positive to uh, bring out about uh, your story is as opposed to, you know, we've had many physicians on here who have talked about the difficulties of sort of staying within the traditional system and, you know, instituting metabolic therapies to help their patients. Uh, but you've, you've been able to find a way to do that. So talk about what that's been like. And, you know, it might be the psychiatric practice is maybe a little different than the traditional family practice, uh, you know, where uh, there's sort of the influence, you know, you don't have, the 15 minute visit uh, forced upon you, like many of the family do. Uh, but talk about the challenges of just instituting this in your practice on a daily basis. So I think you hit the nail on the head. The, the luxury that I have 
that I can sometimes see patients for 50 minutes session. And, um, and so normally those would be for quote unquote psychotherapy, but, uh, I can use them for anything I want. Um, uh, if, you know, uh, that's medically indicated, I'm not saying I'm talking about nothing, but, uh, in this case, I'm implementing a treatment. Patients need a lot of education. They need a lot of coaching, a lot of support. Um, and, uh, so I can, and so usually when I start the patient, um, we, we, usually, I give them reading material. I give them several websites to go to get information on it. Um, I encourage as much of that as possible, but I always have at least probably two or three sessions with them where we are talking very pragmatically about what is the diet going to be like. I always, um, I have found one of the keys to my success that I tell people up front to expect a living hell for the first time. Um, and, you know, some people in the keto community are like, why would you say, you know, don't diss our diet? And I'm like, no, you have to diss the diet because you don't diss it there people are going to be horrified or terrified when they feel bad um if they start experiencing keto flu they are going to think something has gone terribly wrong or that you don't know what you're talking about and they're going to quit the diet um because they're not feeling good so instead i go the other extreme i say the first weeks are going to be a living hell you're going to feel weak, dizzy, lightheaded. You're going to feel hungry as hell. You're going to have cravings. So irresistible. It's going to be awful. But I'm going to get you through it. And and, um, um, and we are going to do it together. And we're going to talk about that for two or three sessions. And we're going to talk about what you are going to do. You're going to eat. You're going to eat a lot. And I don't care about weight loss or anything else in the first week. What I care about is toast. I want to get you in ketosis. Once we get you there, things start getting easier, and then we'll worry about the um, if weight loss is one of the goals. It, it isn't always. Sometimes I, I'm treating thin patients who have a psychotic disorder. So I'm really targeting their brain physiology, not their weight or fats. That's fascinating um, to, to think about it that way, that you're using this, this particular way of that everybody on this show, well, we're 50 episodes into it, I'll talk about the body, but you're specifically targeting brain function using this particular way of eating or the, the effects. That's, that's an yeah. interesting spin. And, I, and it, it does, in many ways, set apart from many people in Um. Because a lot of people in the low-carbon keto community will kind of say, well, this is the way everybody should eat. Um, or we'll say, you know, this is that sugar causes whatever illness they're targeting. Right. And I don't, I don't, I, I think there is some truth to those statements, but I don't say those things and I don't believe that's always I, I think that you know, so an extreme 
you can have a child, an infant, resting to a metabolically healthy mother, and that child can have epilepsy. That child isn't eating a bad diet. Um, that child has epilepsy, some other. But nonetheless, a ketogenic diet can stop that child often. And so it, it's not that you're getting rid of a quote-unquote bad diet, that you're doing a metabolic intervention. And you're changing brain metabolism um, to restore normal brain and promote healing brain. Um, and that's the way I think about prevention. Even though I myself have primarily been on a relatively low carbohydrate diet for over 20 years, and I am that works, and so I'm very familiar, and I'm not I'm not anti that other model of keto or low carb diets can be good for general health, be a lifestyle. I'm I 100% agree with that. But when I'm using this in people with treatment with serious mental disorder, I'm thinking. About it, very different um, and uh, so um, so I so back to the patient. So I do this education, warn them, and uh, I usually met. You know, if they're coming in person to see me, I am monitoring their ketones, glucose levels, weight, um, which is valuable because if they don't have ketones, we're having a conversation about what's going on. What are you? And they can be squaring up and down that they're doing the diet, and I can look them in the eye and say, "No, you're not, because you don't have ketones." And um, and I'm not saying that you're lying to me, but clearly, whatever you think you're doing that's right isn't right. We need like, and sometimes it's as simple as they're chewing gum, sugar gum. Um, sometimes it's as simple as they thought they, you know, I've had one patient. Well, my other doctor told me I have to eat a banana every day. I, I have to because that's good for potassium. I'm like, well, the banana needs to go. That's not on the list of foods. Um, you can't have a banana. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so sometimes it, you know, a lot of the patients really are trying their best, but they just need more education. They need more coaching. They need help to get through it. I'd like to try to untangle a knot that I realize is in my thing that I think you're doing, but I'm, I'm going to try to articulate this question. I have a, being an, an, a layman, utterly brain science, college, that's when I hear the term I, I also think about all the words Mental illness means screwed up. Hearing you say is that it, I think you use the phrase chronic mental illness, chronic brain disorder. What I'm hearing is that at least some of them aren't a thinking issue. They're a brain issue. The lump of gray matter in soul. That's what the problem the The electrochemistry, the hormone. Yeah, that's yeah. tough. You, and I realize so that may you, sound like a, a silly question, but but no, no, that's no, where no. I've it's been. A, it's it is it is a brilliant question, and so this is this is the this is 
a an issue that has plagued the mental health field ever since the mental health field existed millennia ago. Um, and you know, so right now, DSM uh, doesn't separate necessarily what we might call normal depression that lasts for more than from pathological depression occurring for no. So in other words, if you have if if, if you are happily married with two children, your wife and two kids get killed in a car accident, you become depressed. Most people would say that's normal. That's not a disorder. That's right. not a mental illness. That's, sure. that's not a mental illness. That's normal. That's a, called being a human being, loved his wife and kids. If your depression lasts for 15 days, DSM-5 says you now have a mental illness. So it's, at day 13, you didn't have a mental illness. At day 15, it quick it, it switched over to a mental illness and you know that alone lacks common sense <laughs> yeah. it uh that that just completely lacks common sense so prior versions of DSM allowed for two months of grief with some caveats um but it's it's one of the conundrums and kind of even defining what is mental illness. And yeah. because everybody gets anxious at times, everybody has been, most people have been depressed, even for a few days, something bad happened to them. And I don't think of those as mental disorders. I think of those as normal human mental state. Um, and for those, if you're having one of those things, then talking to somebody about it can be immensely helpful. And that may sure. be all you need to do. Talk to somebody about it because you need support. You need human compassion. Yeah, you're, going through a, you're going through a human issue that humans can help each other with just yes. by, by connecting By kindness and, and compassion yeah. and empathy and all of that. However, there are other people who can develop that exact same depression for no reason whatsoever. No reason whatsoever as far as we In other cases, you know, people with pancreatic cancer, that classic one in textbooks that people in, with pancreatic cancer often develop clinical depression before they get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So the oh. cancer itself seems to be causing depression. So these people get depressed out of the blue for no good reason. And then a few months later, get diagnosed with their pancreatic and And then we know, oh, the cancer must have been causing that depression. Now, in those cases, it's, it's not a normal reaction. I, so I think of those as disorders of brain function, that something is happening in the body or the brain that is impacting the function of those same circuits, those same circuits that exist 
to make that man who loses his wife and kids depressed. Those same circuits exist in all of us. But if those circuits get inappropriately activated, they go off at the wrong time. Then I would call that a mental Um, If those same circuits fail to turn off, so if that man remains severely crippled, depressed for five years, five years later, he still can't get out of bed, he can't find a way to go on with I would say that man probably has a mental disorder. Um, At some point, people have to move on, no matter how tragic something is. At some point, on with life. It doesn't mean they need to forget about them. It doesn't mean they need to be heartless. I'm not trying to say that they just, you know, forget about yeah. the wife and kids um, or even move on to another relationship, but they have to They have to start moving on with life and re-engaging with society. And if they're not able to re-engage with society, then then that might be a order. I would probably say it is. And then there are extreme examples. Somebody's hallucinating, talking to themselves. They're delusional. They're paranoid all the time. They're convinced of so many things that aren't true. I think in everyone's mind, that is a mental illness. Right. And those mental illnesses represent the brain malfunction. And talking to people about your brain malfunction doesn't necessarily, usually doesn't help a whole lot. In some cases, it can be helpful. But, so what I'm um, hearing, what I'm hearing is that that we can have uh, two different causes present with the same, uh, uh, apparently same effect. Yes, sometimes the, the cause is symptoms. just a natural part of life, but sometimes the the cause that looks exactly the same in terms of the symptom. Sometimes the cause is you got a problem in your brain. You literally have. A biological, a chemical issue that that we're finding can be resolved by getting your body into a state of ketosis. And my guess is also that normal depression is probably not as strongly affected by by being in a state of ketosis. Probably, yes, you know, I, the guy who I lost his wife, he's probably still going to take a little time. He is. Even, even under normal on, circumstances. Even if he's on a, he could be on a ketogenic diet when the wife and kids got killed. And, um, and I don't know that, I don't think that the ketogenic diet would protect him from having depression. Um, and in many ways, I think all of us would probably be horrified if he didn't get depressed. Oh, yeah. Even if he was on a ketogenic yeah. diet, we, because that would mean he's not even human anymore. Like he, yeah. he's lost all of his, passion and love and you know uh attached to other humans like that would not be a good thing happening um so yeah so i think that there are normal mental states and mental disorders and unfortunately the mental health field right now does not do a good job of okay but that did help me that this, helped to clear up some yeah. of my thinking in that regard i appreciate and this has been a uh, great discussion, Chris. I think uh, Jack, season three is just going to be inviting all our, our season two guests back on for uh, part two of the discussions. Um, or we need to get Joe Rogan style and have three hour podcasts uh, soon. 
but before we go, I definitely want to uh, hear about the book, Chris. Uh, I'm certainly excited oh, yes, for, uh, for the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, what it's called, when it's coming out, and where people can get it. Thank you. So the um, book is called Brain Energy. You go to my website. You can search for it on Amazon um, or any bookseller. It's available for pre-order already, but it doesn't release November 15th. Um, and the book uh, represents the work I've been doing for the last five years now, trying to understand how in the hell does a ketogenic diet cure for all intents and purposes because it was wow. really mind-blowing and essentially what i what i came up with is i came up with a kind of I, this is gonna sound crazy but <laughs> i came up with a unifying theory for all illness. well i, I um, gotta tell you that was the first thing i thought when you started talking was oh my god this sounds like they're made yeah please go yes. And so, the, the, in a nutshell, the unifying theory is that mental disorders are metabolic brain. And in my book, I distinguish what it was talking about. There's a difference between a mental disorder and a mental state, a normal reaction. Um, so depression is not always a mental disorder. But when it is a mental disorder, it's a metabolic disorder of the brain. But this applies to all mental um, wow. Alcoholism, schizophrenia, eating, all mental can be tied to metabolic abnormality that essentially are causing the brain to melt. In essence, that's what it is. So the different disorders have different symptoms um, because different areas of the brain can be affected by metabolic problems. And uh, so if one area of your brain like the depression pathways of your brain are metabolically compromised, you're going to have depression. If the pathways of your brain that affect, you know, OCD symptoms are affected, you're going to have more symptoms. Um, and on and on. And but the the thing that I love about this theory is that although it may sound like it's new, um, and in some ways it is. Like nobody, not many people are out there saying all metabolic disorders or all mental disorders are metabolic disorders in the brain. I've never heard anybody say that myself. But basically all I've done is I've taken all of the existing research we've accumulated over the last hundred years. So all of it. All of the neuroimaging research, all of the biomarker information, but also the psychological social. Why does why does trauma to mental disorders. How does stress lead to a mental disorder? How, you know, all of these things, how does it all fit together? The thing I love about this theory is that metabolism, specifically mitochondria, are the regulators of metabolism, can connect the dots of mental And once the dots are connected, it it presents new treatment pathway. Obviously, this audience ketogenic diet is one of those treatments, but it's not the only one. There are many other treatment pathways that open up once you understand this paradigm. And uh, and 
you know, so far, I'm actually getting really good reviews. The the, the most exciting thing, the last few days, I got a very positive endorsement of the book. Soon be a public from one of the leading psychiatry world who thinks that this is maybe the first step toward finally, once and for all, disease-modifying for people. So instead of treating their symptoms and letting them suffer for the rest of their lives, chronic debility disorder, maybe begin first and effectively some of them. Amazing. And with I that... That's, a, that's a great place to to stop, but, yeah, but I don't. I hope yeah. we're not done. No, we're I, certainly I, not done. But... There's so many things I want to ask, but we're we're here. So all right, yeah. Thank I, you, well, thank, thank you, you Chris. For the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> before we go, t- tell everyone where they can uh, find you, uh, the website or social media. Where best place to connect with me and, and the book, if you're interested in the book, is right on my website, chrispalmermd.com. So chrispalmermd, all one word, dot com. Uh, and Easy to remember. If, if you're interested on social media, I tend to be most active on Twitter. So uh, you could follow me on Twitter if you want. Excellent. Well, provide in the show notes. Listeners, uh, Thanks for for this one, Chris. I am here. I am. I'm just speechless. This is amazing. I can't wait to read the book. Um, I want to ask all the questions that I still have in the next time we talk to you, which I hope will be here in the six months or so. You keep hitting it out of the ball. This is really getting fun. Um. This is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Our guest has been Chris Palmer, MD. Would like to learn about him. You've got there, Dr. A metabolic Health Quiz you can take. Hearts.co. Follow him on Twitter at IFixHearts. And I can't wait for the next one. I'm Jack Heald. We'll talk soon. Chances are, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.